I'm, I'm going to state probably what is the obvious, but it's sometimes just good to state the obvious, to be reminded of the obvious. And, and that is that, you know, we have, we as Christians live in a, a very unique society and a unique time and culture in which um, quite literally um, God, and by God I mean the God specifically revealed in the Bible and specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, that we live in a time where God is being squeezed out to the edges, to the margins of the world. Um, that he no longer holds a place in all things. So that our, 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 our history books have been sanitized from any sense of divine providence guiding history, which wasn't the case 150 years ago. Um, we know this from some of, I know this from some of my, um, my friends who are college students to this day who are in secular institutions where they feel afraid in the middle of a, of a botany class or an astronomy class or a chemistry class to raise their hand and say, can we talk just for a moment as to the plausibility of intelligent design? And that's just a way of talking about God without using his name, Right? You'd, you'd, you'd probably be better off and get a, a, a less caustic reaction if you say, you know what, everybody, I have herpes, than to say, can we talk about, I'm serious, uh, can we talk about intelligent design? We just live in a world where God's been pressed out from the weather. It's like, okay, we had all this drought, now we're just being flooded. And it's like, well, these are just the natural, impersonal, cause-effect relationships of the creation around us, which we shouldn't call it creation because actually that implies a creator. However... Hey, man, I'm just like going, God, thank you for bringing rain, right? That's, that's, we're supposed to believe that God is involved in all things. But, but it's our, our culture wants to exile him. It's like they want to banish him to the edges, or send him away to the island of misfit gods of the past. You know, that's how it feels. That's how it feels out there. And, and as a result of that very naturalistic, implicitly atheistic worldview, we have a tendency to let it contaminate us so that our, our thinking in our minds um, allow God to be shriveled and small and diminished. And, and we allow them to almost define how God works. And, and we allow them to let God be at the edges of, of the world. And, and for, for just... For the church and for Christians and for me, if I allow that contamination to, to happen, what happens is, it, it, is it, it just saps our energy, our courage. We have no passion because our God has been, been drained of his majesty and his power and who he really is according to the scripture. And that's, that's where for, for, um, for the church, one of the, well, to me, one of the urgent needs is for us to regain, like, Reacquire, renew, re-see the grandeur of Almighty God as revealed in Scripture and allow that to saturate our minds because then we'll rediscover passion, then we'll rediscover courage, and we'll have a faith that will be unstoppable. It's that grand vision of God. And you know, this, this book of uh, Exodus is just one of those books that can do that. Now, in one sense, all of the Bible can exalt God to the highest place, but this particular book has has extraordinary descriptions and words and, and pictures that just bring the power of, of, of God to life because on the pages of this story, like God Almighty storms into history and he declares in an unprecedented way, this is who I am. It's not the first book in the Bible, of course. God has introduced himself in Genesis 1 as the one who created the world, but 
But he introduced himself as a, in a, with a generic name, the name of El or Elohim or God, which, which could be applied to any number of gods. But in Exodus, for the first time, he says, this is my name. Like he has a name that he wants us to use that defines who he is, the the I am or Yahweh, right? This is my name. It's like in this book, he storms on the scene, he humbles the nation, and in a very powerful way, he delivers a people that he has chosen to love. Not because they're good or righteous, but because he's gracious. That's, that, that, that it, in this book, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, which are, they're not bad, they're wonderful and full of the morality of God himself. So, here you have God storming onto the, the scene in this book and in a way that, that, that exalts him. And, and so as we proceed through this book, that's kind of my prayer, and I hope you'll join me in it. If you've never read it, and most of you, I think, have, um, but if you haven't, at least read the first 20 chapters. And, and instead of just reading it as history, because it is history, but it's not just history. Like, this book is history with a point, Things were pulled together and told in such a way that it's, it's sending a message. It is theologically shaped history to teach us something about God and something about ourselves and in the way in which God has worked in history and will work in the future to save us. So that's my encouragement in the reading. Um, if you if you're don't know really anything about the history of the Bible, it's a pretty simple up to this point. Like, the Bible really is one story. It ends where it begins. It starts with creation. Then there's massive fall, Adam and Eve. Everything falls apart like an avalanche goes down from there. And, um, but God makes this restorative promise to Abraham long, long time ago that, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring things back. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you kids and a nation. A nation's going to come out from you, and you're going to bless the nations. And, and here in Exodus is part of the fulfillment of that restorative promise that I, 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 he forges a nation, the nation of Israel. That's, that's the great event that happens in this book, and God covenants himself to them as a nation. Now, here's the verse that I'm going to, I'm going to focus in on. It's just kind of a way of holding up. I'm not going to use a lot of slides, just a verse, actually two Actually, more than two, but um, two slides, okay? One with one verse and two, one with a number of verses. And the reason I did that is because it's pretty simple what I want to talk about. I'm just, I want to elevate two things about God that this book reveals. And it has to do with power and redemption. I think you can remember those. So you don't need the slide. And I don't want the distraction. This is the verse. Um, In this particular point in the book, it's in the form of a promise. Later, it becomes a statement of fact. When God says, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, the reason that I'm focusing in on this verse is because um, a form of this declaration is found seven different times in the writings of Moses. It's shorthand for the event that we're about to look at. And it's picked up and repeated through the ages by the prophets as a way of saying, remember back to the time when God saved you with an outstretched hand. So it's, it's kind of at the core of, of this book of what God has done. And you see there's, um, there are two complementary parts. There's the redeeming part, which is the first, 
And then there's the outstretched arm part, which is a, it's a picture of, of, of power in motion. Like, if you can imagine, God doesn't actually have arms, but he, he sends out his, his omnipotent hand and he does something with it. That's the picture. Power and redemption or love. Power part. First thing that this book reveals about, about God himself in very um, inspirational ways is that the power of Yahweh is uncontestably superior to anything else. That is that God's power is supreme. And he's going to show that um, in a universal, obvious, um, undeniable way in this book. Now, we're familiar with power as a, as a nation. I grew up thinking and identifying as I'm part of a superpower. United States, even though we have a lot of problems, we still know we have a military that will kick butt, right? Um, they can, we can park uh, carrier groups and nuclear subs all around the world and pretty much end life as we know it if we wanted to, right? That's, that's the kind of power we have. And, and uh, that's, we understand, we feel what it's like to be on top well, in the time in which this book was written, the superpower of the day was, was this empire called the, the Egyptian Empire, and it had a very powerful king, and it had, it had a, a, a military machine that was unparalleled. It's just like it was the superpower of the day. But it's unlike our time, um, where we separate out religion from governance, right? Separation of church and state, whether you like that concept or not. In the Egyptian times, it was all mingled and it was all merged together so that the power of Pharaoh and the power of his armies and the power of the empire was a reflection of the power of its pantheon or the power of its gods. So it's a, it's a political entity with theological implications. And it's holding God's people, God's, um, the Jewish people, um, in bondage. Horrible bondage you can read about in chapter 1, and we'll, we'll be covering, about, covering it in, in, in next week. But holding them in bondage. And uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 17 tells us that they were in the grip of Egypt for 430 years. People, that's longer than we've been a country. People were in, at some level, to some degree, in bondage. That is a long time. And I was reading this and putting myself in there because all of us like to be, feel special. Like, well, I'm going to do some major part in, in, in redemptive history or for the sake of God. Well, what happens if you were one of the generations in that 430 years that had to suffer? That was your part. I'd be like under the power and dominion of Egypt and its gods. I'd be like going, where are you? That would be a natural response is to say, where are you? God's not even on the margins. How can you let us in this place suffer oppression and slavery for this long? How can you? That, that would be what I would be thinking, what most people would be thinking in that time. God doesn't work like we sometimes wish him to on our timetable or even within one generation. His works span generations, but God does have a plan, and you know what? He sends his man. He raises up Moses in chapter 2, and oddly enough, he takes him out of a place of supremacy and puts him into a place of humility as a shepherd. And he calls this shepherd and calls him to be a prophet. And he says, you know, you know the story. Go down, 
to the superpower and tell them, tell Pharaoh, you let my people go, right? Let my people go. Moses snivels a little bit, objects, but eventually goes. And, and the, the picture is almost, um, it's kind of like David and Goliath. So here comes waltzing down into the teeth of a superpower to face an emperor of the day, a shepherd with a shepherd's staff who's a prophet. And in Egypt, you know how these, all, all these ornate temples, you know, grand, opulent, that, that express the majesty of their gods. And, and, and here's Moses coming down in the name of a god by the name of Is. And the whole thing is set up where it's going to be a showdown. A showdown between the shepherd prophet and his singular God and Pharaoh and his pantheon of of gods. It's a showdown of uh, uh, unbelievable Hollywood-type proportions, right? Now, let me just pause here and just clarify something that may or may, well, it should help you. It's... Most of the time when God works in history, he works by way of what I'll just call hidden providence. That is, we're told in Scripture that, you know, he, nothing falls to the ground. No, no sparrow falls to the ground without his will. But that looks like a very ordinary event from our vantage point. But that's a way of saying that God, like, is behind everything, working through normal things, normal patterns, normal choices, normal passing of legislation, of raising up kings and so forth, that God is, is working behind the scenes in all of those things. But, but what's, what's, um, what's true about providence is that God is not obvious in that. You can't actually look and say, wow, that was, God was obviously in the election of Donald Trump. That's creating a theological issue for you, huh? Some of you. Was he, was he not? I, I don't know. It's like, okay, so that's providence. That, most of the time, that's how God is at work, and he's at work that way in our country, and it is amazing truth. But there are times in history, there are times in history when, as it were, like, the gloves come off. And God intrudes into human history in very invasive, obvious ways, where people are left undeniably convinced Wow, that could only be explained by the fact that there is a God. And this is a book where God pulls off the gloves. And it's seen from the top to the bottom. Um, that here comes this shepherd in the name of, and I almost think the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh must have been a little bit comical. He's like, yeah, my God says I'll let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, uh, what's the name of your God? Um, his name is, is, or I am. Are you flipping kidding me? That's his name? My gods have way better names than that. David, Goliath. But what God does in the unfolding of the pages of Exodus is he completely dismantles the power structures of Egypt. Militarily, politically, and theologically. Like all those plagues, scholars, not all, but many, believe were targeted very specifically like torpedoes to show that the gods, the pantheon of the Egyptian religious system were worthless. So, for example, 
one of the, and you guys probably know this because you've seen movies where they actually resurrect the name of an old Egyptian god like Anubis or Ra, right? Like Ra was like, that even sounds kind of cool, Ra, right? He was one of those, he was, he was the, the god of the sun or god of the light and also like the supreme being within their pantheon, that means all gods, the supreme being and then the creator of all things. So that's how they believed. That's what they believed about, like, this is our champion, Ra, <laughs> is versus Ra. Hmm. So you can imagine successive plagues begin to happen. Plagues which threaten particular dominions of divinities within the pantheon of, of the Egyptian religious system. And then it comes to number nine. Moses comes to Pharaoh, and this is all my paraphrase, really loose paraphrase. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go, because if not, Yahweh is going to turn out the sun. He's going to turn out the lights. I would suspect that Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh would have said, are you kidding me? I have, He's the sun guy. He created all things. Like That's his specialty. He has a PhD in lighting and illuminescence and sun. He, he's just, I'm sorry, but Iz isn't going to do that. And have you ever seen those lights, that, the cheap lights you put up in your attic, you know, with a little chain? It's just like, okay, not going to let my people go. And, and Yahweh, you know, is, I am, goes. Clink. Three days, there's no light. Three days, there's no sun. Oddly enough, the people of Israel living in Goshen, plenty of light there. So who's the God of the light? Who's the God of the sun? Well, Yahweh's like, yet once again, um, Pantheon, zero. Yahweh, nine. Even, Even Pharaoh was believed to be a god. Some kind of divine incarnation. And the final, the, the, the final plague, the tenth, was aimed at him. It's like, again, through the voice of Moses, my paraphrase, loose. It's like, so, you think you're a god. All your people look to you and worship you as a type of a god. Tonight, I'm going to take the life of your boy. The hardest lesson you're ever going to learn, and what you're going to learn is you have you can do nothing about it because all you are is flesh and blood. You see, this Yahweh is asserting his supreme power. He is demolishing not only the pride of, of, of Pharaoh to deliver his people, not only the back of his armies, but at the end of the day, the entire religious system implodes. And who's left standing? is. <laughs> that's awesome, right? That's, 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 that's the power of God, the supremacy of God shown. He takes off the gloves and shows himself to be the only God. There's, it's like the words of Isaiah, to whom will you compare me, says the Holy One. You lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Ra? No. Do you realize how um, against the grain and provocative Genesis 1-1, written by Moses, you know, was? 
to his day in which the whole world was believed to be managed by divinities. And he writes, oh, by the way, in the beginning was, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God alone? There's only one, and Yahweh's him sorry, right? Unapologetically and controversially insists that there is one God over the earth who owns it, and now he is redeeming his people with a mighty outstretched arm. Now let me just make a side comment. A popular movement today in Christian circles not all, I hope not here, but maybe there's a little bit of it here. And if it is, let's just stamp it out right now. There is this movement to believe that it really doesn't matter which God you worship. Biff, Bob, Sally, Vishnu, Shiva, take your pick. It doesn't matter what you worship because it just matters that you worship the Lord. We just call that universalism or pluralism. Let me just say... I really believe Yahweh would have a really hard time with that. That is, he says, that I, I have a name. I have a character. I am personal. I am sovereign. And you can't just turn me into whoever you want. I mean, he spent 10 plagues demolishing a religious system. There is one. And listen, church, I just... To put a little more of a current flavor to this, I, you may look around and God may be being pushed to the periphery, pushed to the edges, squeezed out, sent to the island of misfit gods. But the prophets of old and the apostles in the final book of the Bible says and tells us, declares to us that at some point here, pretty soon, the gloves are going to come back off again. And, and people tells us kings and those who are poor of high estate and low estate are going to find them caves and they're going to say, crush us because the wrath of God has come. And at that time, no one's going to be able to deny that God is center stage. He does not and will not for very long allow himself to be pushed to the margins. We have to remember that. Like, instead of letting culture condition our thoughts about God, we got to let the scripture fill up our thoughts about God. Like, this is who he is, right? Don't allow them to contaminate or infect us with a, of a, of a tiny God. And days coming when God's going to implode everything that this world trusts in and is going to be left with nothing. So that's the power part. But, but that power is exercised for a very particular purpose, and that is to redeem, right? To reclaim and to free and to liberate and bring a people that he chose. Yes, he chose them. And not because of anything good in them or righteous in them, but chose them by grace because he made a promise. That he was going to redeem, which is, a, an, a, is an expression of his love, his loving kindness, his grace, and his mercy. And he's exercising all of this power to reclaim his people, to bring them to himself. And yet, what's interesting about the way in which the book of Exodus unfolds is that it's careful to preserve, by way of some rather stark tension, the character of God and how he relates with his people. All right? Just think about this for a moment. If I told you, listen, 
I want you to be with me. I'm doing everything I can for you to be with me. And you came to my house and you knocked on the door. I opened the door and said, stop right there. Can't come any closer. You'd be like, what? I thought you said you wanted to be be here. I, I do. I'm choosing to love you and want you to be here. But you can't come any closer. Would that strike you as odd? God does all this, all of these 10 plagues, and his people finally get delivered, and they come to him. He wants them to come to him. That's what covenant's about, is joining together. And yet, whenever they come in close proximity to each other, God still says, we have to be segregated. So come to the mountain. Come. Stop. Don't touch the mountain or you're going to die. Right? It's like, come be with me. I've worked for you to be with me, but you can't really be with me. That should feel like, wait, how does that work? It's tension. God wants to be with his people as their God, but he can't actually be with his people. And every time God is with his people, he's like shrouded. He's segregated. He's, he's, he's not accessible, at least not directly. So, you know, and this is one of the cool things about if you read the story, it's, it's, it's brilliant because... He's up on the mountain alone. People can't get near him. And God says, hey, I want you to build me a tabernacle. And we read through that stuff like, oh, this is really boring reading. But from a big picture, it's not boring because what God is saying is saying, I'm going to come off the mountain and I'm going to be with you. I want to camp with you. That's, now that's love and that's mercy. That's grace. But I need a really thick tent Because you can't come into my presence or I will incinerate you because I'm holy. I cannot stand sinfulness in my presence, right? All the way through, there's this tension of you're with me, but you can't be with me. I love you, but I'm holy, right? A tension that is maintained through the whole Old Testament. Like how how can there be resolution? And, And here, Exodus like hints at God's mechanism of solving the problem so that we can one day be personally and directly in his presence. And it has to do with the 10th plague. All right, follow me here. The 10th plague that happens, the death of the firstborn, is unlike any of the other plagues on a number of levels. All the other nine... The Jewish people didn't have to do anything to protect themselves. Nothing. God turns out the lights on the Egyptians. Lights stay on for, for the people of Israel. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to hang up Philip's lights or LED lights or anything. They didn't have to do anything. None of the first nine, they had to do anything. The other unique thing is that it's the firstborn sons that are going to die in this final cumulative Um, climactic plague. It's the firstborn sons. Firstborn sons. And the people have to protect themselves. So most of you know the story. If you don't, it's it's pivotal to the whole joining together of Christ and Passover. Is Moses gives instructions like, listen, you find a perfect lamb under a year and you got to slay the lamb, take the blood and put it on the lentil in the, in the, the doorpost of the house. And uh, when, when, when God comes by and, and exercises this judgment of death, well, then he's going to look upon the blood and he's going to pass by your house, which is where we get the word Passover, right? Um, but the Jewish people had to do that. They, like, had to have blood. 
implying that the Jewish people, like the Egyptian people, were sinful and guilty. But it's, 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 it's interesting that God would choose out of all things the blood of a, of a perfect lamb, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking just blood. Now, we're so familiar with the story that we don't stop to think. So when God passed over, did he, did he stop at each house and go, wait a second, I better do a tabulation of sins. How grumpy were these family members? Were they on the naughty list or the nice list? Should I give them the coal or, you know? There was no, there was no analysis or evaluation at all. No matter how well they did or how poorly they did, he didn't look at that. There was no evaluation of people's moral character. Nothing. It was one thing, and one thing only protected God's people. This thin layer of blood on the doorpost. Like, seriously. Like, that's all that's needed to protect me from death. All that's needed is this blood of a perfect lamb. That's it. It's the only thing God looks at, right? And passes over. Be horrible people living in the house. If there's blood, I'm passing over. Teaches us, of course, that in order for one to live, something else must die in its place. For someone to live, blood must be shed and cover. That's the basic logic of, of redemption, of salvation, all the way back. But, but there's more to that, and I, I want to add a little bit of a addition. Added a addition. It's interesting that, functionally speaking, what broke the pride of Pharaoh and gained freedom for God's people, what functionally delivered them was the death of the firstborn son of Pharaoh. You follow? It wasn't until he died, because he had no blood, there was no protection, no safe harbor, that he faced, this firstborn son of Pharaoh faced death. And as a result, Pharaoh said, get out of here. Functionally, it was the death of the firstborn son of Pharaoh who had no blood to cover him that led to the freedom of God's people. And it's, find it an irony of ironies that what ultimately gained our freedom and our deliverance was the death of what Colossians calls the firstborn of creation. That is, the Son of God. That he, you know, had no safe harbor. There was no refuge. There was no place of protection. There's no place of safety, but willingly chose to be the one that says, listen, I just lay myself out completely unshielded to take death so that my people can live. So he becomes the slain firstborn and the Passover lamb that brings our freedom. And that, 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 that of course, tells us that this whole Passover lamb thing is, is much richer and deeper than just taking the blood of a perfect lamb or even the firstborn death of Pharaoh's son as just an event. It's like this prophetic anticipation in which God was saying, listen, the, the day's coming which all of you are going to need this protection. All of you are going to have to have this blood by which you will find safe harbor from my, my justice and holiness. And, and that, of course, is, uh, 
is the offering of the firstborn son of God himself in whom alone we have safe harbor. And you know, at the end of the day, um, when God takes off the gloves, he's not going to be doing a deep evaluation of how good or bad you did. That's not going to be the determining factor. But he's going to look and does this person have the blood of Christ on the door of his heart? And is he or she trusting in that and that alone and nothing else? to save him or her in the day to come. That's it. And yet at the same time, when you get that, it does change your life and it does produce fruit, which the Lord will reward on that day. But that's the, that's the, that's the working of God to redeem. And you know, I, I thought about this. This just came to me a couple days ago. You know, that, that here in, in Exodus, like God's power is so great, you know. It's like you got... Thunder and hail and rivers turning to blood and sun going out. And it's just like all of these like cataclysmic, awesome displays of power. But you know, as I've thought about it, I realize, you know, what happened in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which is the true exodus, it is the deepest new exodus. It was a display of power that made the power unleashed in Exodus, our book right here, seem like chump change. Now, now you might say, well, how? Like, how can a man dying on a cross display that much power? Like, more than suns going out and stuff. It's a good question. It's really, a, it's a good question. And, and, and I think there's more than one answer, but let me just offer two One has to do with the nature of power itself. If someone says to you, give you the logic, if someone said to you, I think you're a white racist because you're bald, and someone told me that one time, what's easier? And by the way, the hair fell out. All right? It's not a choice. <laughs> What's easier in that moment? To get angry, and respond, invent, and react? Why, how dare you call me a white supremacist? And go, tell me, is it easier to do that? Or is it easier to refrain and offer kindness? I think it takes much less power to event oneself than it does to restrain oneself. Know this in marriage too, right? I mean, husbands and wives, they know how to get under each other's skin. You know, and if, if your husband came home and, and your wife said to you, Hey, sweetheart, would you mind giving me a cup of water? And you said, Why don't you get up off your lazy butt and why don't you get it yourself? In that moment, wife... Is it take more power to restrain yourself from ripping his head off? <sighs> yeah, sure does, right? Thank you. Then just go, are you seriously kidding me? I am out of here. I'll see you next week, right? The thing is, is it takes greater power to restrain and refrain and to control and to choose to do what's harder. Now think about that. 
Like here you have the Son of God who is the God-man. He is both Alpha and the Omega. He is, according to Colossians, he is before all things and he has created all things, both by and for him. In him the fullness of divinity dwells. So, so he has the capacity to bring down the thunder, bring down the hail, bring up the frogs and the gnats and turn everything to blood and incinerate the universe in a moment. And he has a perfect right to exercise vengeance on anybody who would mar his character. And yet, here is Aslan, to you, C.S. Lewis. Here is the Son of God, somehow, who refrains, who denies his divine prerogatives to judge and gain vengeance and retaliate, and instead he allows evil, malevolent men to pound nails into his feet and into his hands, and he offers nothing in return except love. That church is power. You feel that? It's like, I was thinking about that. I just burst into tears the other day. I'm like, man, you were God to do that. That's what makes him unlike any other God. There's no pagan God that does that. Who shows that kind of power to deny himself his glory in the moment in order to show his glory by saving people. And then... In addition to that, what makes it so powerful is the effects, right? You go back to Egypt in our passage in Exodus, and you know what? You realize that at the end of the day, it didn't deal with the cause. It just dealt with the symptom. It dealt with political oppression, slavery, but it never dealt with the heart. It never never dealt with guilt, which is why really the whole Exodus motif of God delivering his people out of bondage, it happened over and over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again. The whole Testament is like the cycle of God judging his people, them becoming oppressed, and then God saving his people. It's like, when will it ever end? Well, it won't end because the heart of it hasn't been dealt with, but in person of Jesus, the heart of it was dealt with. Our guilt was forever taken away. And life was given in its place. And a new heart was offered to the people. And through that single event, God would transform the lives of hundreds of thousands of millions of people. And ultimately, the ends of the earth will be regenerated as a result of what God did in Christ. That church is our exodus. Where the power of God was displayed in the midst of weakness in order to give us and save us from the most deadly of all things, and that is our own guilt, sin, and the death, uh, the second death. That's, that's our exodus. And it's so much better than what happened in Egypt. And I'll tell you, um, right now we're like them. The people of Israel, they were delivered out of Egypt, but they were in process of getting to the promised land, right? So they were redeemed But then they were in process. They had to follow the Lord, listen to the Lord, and to the promised land. And along the ways, they they failed to trust the Lord. They failed to listen to his voice. God says, let's go take the land. And they're like, we're too afraid. And so we're not going to listen to your voice. And God says, okay, you're not going to trust me, trust my word, listen to me, and obey and go take the land. You're never going to see it. We live between the new exodus and the new creation. This world is not our home yet. You have to remember that. He's, he's leading us. 
having done everything necessary in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we're on our way to the promised land. We're on our way to the new creation. We're not there yet. And what he calls of us is the same thing he calls of the the, the Jewish people in the wilderness. He says, you, your job done everything for you. I am supreme in power, and my love for you is intense. What I'm calling you to do, and this is true of every generation, both Old and New Testament, is listen to my voice. Trust me. Trust my heart. Trust my power. Trust my wisdom. Trust me. And listen to my words. Follow me. A failure to obey, church, a failure to submit one's life to God's voice is a failure ultimately to trust. Right? Because, listen, if you're in the middle of, of a battle be with your children, could be with your health, you know, the temptation is going to be, well, I don't know that God really has good for me, and you're going to be tempted to somehow deviate from the path and probably worship other things in the process. And in the middle of that struggle, and, and, and trusting the Lord, especially when it's something tied to your heart, it is tough, but the simple and singular responsibility of the person of God for whom God has done these amazing things is just this. Trust me. Don't trust what you see. Don't trust what you feel. Don't trust your circumstances. Don't trust your government. Don't trust your culture. Don't trust your social marginalizing of God. You trust me and Listen to my voice and follow. That's the simple, that's the simple responsibility of every single one of us. And you know, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this paradigm of we've been redeemed by the cross and now we're on our journey to our rest. And he encourages us over and over again to take that mindset. We are in process. We are in journey. And the most important thing, and just in case you need a verse to back it up, is Don't harden your hearts, but today, like, listen to my voice. Listen to my voice. So listen, as we proceed forward, can you just make it your desire and part of your prayer life? Lord, I want to see you big and powerful. I don't want to see you the way our culture wants to see you, and that is out on the edges of life. Because you know what? The God that I know, that's, that's not who he is. Jesus is Lord, not of some, not of a few. He's Lord of all. Like he's Lord of the oceans, he's Lord of the currents, he's Lord of the trade winds, he's Lord of economics, he's Lord of financial global markets, he's, 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 he's Lord of earthquakes, he's Lord of the peoples, Lord of the nations, he's the Lord who exercises dominion over a king and puts down one president and raises another one up, and that means he fills all things, and that, church, is where we have to have our heads. Make it so, Lord. That we would be a people who know that our God is, is a refuge and strength and know that there was no one like you. There's no one comparable to you who would show such amazing power and such weakness in denying yourself your own divine prerogatives and laying down your life for us. So I just pray for our church, Lord, in this time. Help us to be um, 
faithful. Help us to be faithful to listen and to follow in Christ's name. Amen.